It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi there, I'm Eric. And you're listening to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a bi-weekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. Hey, Becca. Back in the 1980s, did you ever get into professional wrestling? I'd like to say no, but um, when I was a little kid, I would watch Glow, the original Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, um, not the Netflix show. <laughs> and um, this was much to my mother's chagrin. She just couldn't understand. Um, they'd go off antiquing on Saturday mornings, and I'd watch the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So, yeah, I absolutely did. That's, I, too, was a fan of the 1980s version of pro wrestling. And for me, the reason was, is my dad was a huge sports fan, and particularly he loved pro wrestling. And it was a way for my dad and I to actually have something in common, something to bond over, something to talk about. And it, it served as that literally for the rest of our lives together. Um, we talked about wrestling. Uh, he really liked it. I really liked it. He passed away in the 1990s, early 1990s. So he really didn't get to see what wrestling became. Uh, and I do kind of wonder what he would think of it now. But nevertheless, for me, wrestling always has and always will have a nostalgic value because of that. And something that when I look back on it, it reminds me of kind of those happy um, Saturday mornings again. Um, sitting there with my dad and, and watching pro wrestling, which was just big fun at the time. Eric, one of my biggest regrets in life is that I didn't try out pro wrestling. Really? Me too, actually. Um, although I never wanted to be, I never thought that I was going to be like a superstar or anything, but I really did want to be able to say that I, at one point in my life, did a professional wrestling match, even if that just meant I got beat up by some dude who's like a local, you know, big name, but it never happened. When I was a kid, I took karate and my karate dojo was actually also um, a wrestling school. That's Our so awesome. sensei had been, yeah, he had been a luchador, a Mexican wrestler. His name was George de la Isla. And I believe he had gone under the name Mr. Mexico. You know, I saw this, we had this ring and we would sometimes get to do karate in it. And I really liked playing in the ring. And I really liked the idea of being a, a luchadora. So um, later I looked him up and I found that he had moved to Texas and actually trained women wrestlers. And I just felt like I really missed an opportunity there. You were so close. I know. And a friend <laughs> even bought me a cape once. Like I had the cape. <laughs> I had a teacher. What heck? So right. Well, it, I guess it wasn't in the cards. I feel like for me, at least that at the, this age, that um, if I decided to ever even just be like a local level pro wrestling guy, again, who was just the dude for the big star to beat up, um, that I'm just kind of like asking for it, right? I'm asking for some kind of terrible bone break or something. So it's probably best for me just to uh, admire it from afar as a fan. Although um, I did wrestle as, you know, amateur wrestling uh, in high school, although it wasn't, I wasn't very good at it at all. And then I did judo in my uh, 20s and 30s, and I still think about doing that for exercise. 
Yeah. Um, and judo is a Japanese form of wrestling, isn't it? Yes. We're going to talk about judo and the judo wrestling connection today. It's actually the one of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah, I, I did some wrestling too. Um, I did MMA years ago and like I can only really remember armbar and like a few other things. But so that's enough memory lane <laughs> <laughs> for Eric and I. So what does um, all this have to do with Jack Loop Carnival? You yeah, might be exactly. Asking. Yeah, right. <laughs> Eric and I just couldn't get wait to get talking about oh, our right. uh, love of pro wrestling and all Absolutely. sorts of wrestling. Except that here's the thing. As we've said many times, Jack Lip Carnival is a podcast about belief. Belief, suspension of belief, manipulation of belief has been a part of professional wrestling for over a century. So we're going to talk about, for the first half of the show today, we're going to talk specifically about wrestling, how it went from literally a sideshow act in a carnival. How much more perfect is that? to becoming the sports entertainment uh, juggernaut that it is today. And then the okay. second half, I want to talk a little bit about a particular pro wrestler uh, who was about 100 years ago uh, wrestled, and his story is just too good to pass up. Great. And this is actually going to be a two-parter. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, it coming up on another episode the real life Nacho Libre, so wrestling, uh, men of God, and um, <laughs> yeah, so it, we're excited. We hope you stay with us on this journey for uh, of wrestling. So you might be thinking also, mm -hmm. Eric. I just want to add. I feel, I feel like I would be remiss. Like we're talking about belief, and you're talking about how you don't think you could still be a pro wrestler. And I want all our listeners to perhaps clap their hands together if they believe that Eric still has a chance to be a pro wrestler. So wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, clap your hands together if you think Eric can still wrestle. I believe in you, Eric. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. So what does, if you know amateur wrestling, if you've seen, you know, right now the Olympics are happening. If you've been watching any of the amateur wrestling on TV or know amateur wrestling, maybe from like, you know, you wrestled in high school or have a relative who wrestled in high school, you might wonder what on earth ha that has to do, if at all, with what we call pro wrestling or like they say in the South, wrestling. And actually, they do have a common point of origin. Competitive sports wrestling was quite popular in the United States going back as far as we know into the 19th century and a little before that. Now, before the 19th century, the line between what we think of as boxing and wrestling was non-existent. Combat or, you know, combat for sport uh, involved both wrestling holds as well as punching people in the head. And it really and bears. If it's the 19th century, I always feel like it involves bears. It's actually so much better than that, Becca. Um, I, I didn't know if I was going to have to talk about this, but since you brought up bears, I'm going to talk about it. So it, this is on you. There was something called gouging, 
And gouging was also known as no holds barred. I'm literally reading now from the Encyclopedia of North Carolina in a 2006 article uh, by a fellow by the name of Jim L. Sumner, a historian. And it's got to be North Carolina. Of course, it's North Carolina. (laughs) It says gouging, also known as no holds barred or rough and tumble fighting, was an especially violent form of fighting popular in Appalachian backcountry. A mixture of boxing, wrestling, brawling, gouging only prohibited the use of weapons. NC, North Carolina, is considered a stronghold of gougers, and all the legislators responded by making it illegal to cut out tongues and pull out eyes or bite off fingers and noses. North Carolina's gouging persisted. I like that they had to specifically ban biting off a nose. Like, assault wouldn't Uh, cover that? All I can say is, is now I know where I get it, having been born in the great state of North Carolina. (laughs) So I'm going to head up to Appalachia and do me some gouging. Do some gouging. Well, there you go. Um, In 1867, a Welsh athlete by the name of John Graham Chambers drafted what we know as the Queensberry Rules, or what became known as the Queensberry Rules, which, of course, we know is the professional boxing rules. The ones that said you have to wear gloves and, like, not wrestle people or bite. No, I think biting was already, except in North Carolina, biting was already frowned upon. Uh, So when that happened, though, it pretty much invented the modern sports, at least in America, of boxing and wrestling or separated the two. Now, obviously, wrestling is ancient and goes back for probably as long as there's been human beings. But when we're talking about professional wrestling or professional boxing, in the late 1800s, you now have two separate sports. You had two combat sports. That's why boxing rings and wrestling rings, right? They're both different sports that use the same uh, the same setting uh, because once upon a time, they were pretty much the same thing. Um, but wrestlers would, you know, use holds and pins and, you know, you could tap someone out, as they say, because of the influence of judo or, you know, saying uncle is kind of the old school way of doing it. But wrestling and boxing would sometimes be promoted together on the same card. You would see a boxer in the first match, maybe a wrestler in the second. And a lot of times these athletic competitions would happen as a part of the local carnival that was coming through town. This is actually where wrestling begins, professional wrestling begins to be deceptive, but not in the way that you think. Because we often think of professional wrestling today, sports entertainment, as being scripted. I don't want to say fake. And the reason I don't want to say fake is, is that if you know anything about professional wrestling, you know that the men and women who do it literally hurt themselves every night. Well, yeah, I would say you try doing a backflip off of, you right. know, a wrestling ring. Right. This isn't fake. It's scripted. I mean, they usually, you know, 99 times out of 100 know who's going to win. But they're athletes. But they're And they're athletes, sure. there's It's not fake, but it's scripted, unlike, you know, other competitive sports. Early professional wrestling was not on the level, but not in the same way that scripted matches are today. Rather... What they would do is they would have a fella whose job it was to be the wrestling specialist. And the way that he worked in the sideshow was that he would stand there and he would take on all comers. So you would have a carnival to come to town and they would say, you know, put your money up. And if you can pin our wrestler in five minutes or less, you'll get double your money back. 
And the way that this would work is the fellow who was then standing there, he didn't want to be the biggest or the strongest, right? Because he wanted to look like a guy you could beat up. So oftentimes the folks who were working in these carnival wrestling shows uh, weren't physically impressive. They may have even been small. But as you know, if you've ever taken martial arts or competitive wrestling, you know that the size of the competitor is only one aspect that matters. Because honestly, technique matters a whole heck of a lot. And if you know a person who knows how to wrestle, or even better, a person who knows how to do submission holds, then they can take out people who don't know what they're doing. That was the work. That was the deception. And so these wrestlers would stand there, they would wrestle, and they would often make their submission holds look like accidents. And that way they could take out 10, 12 rubes in a night and collect a lot of money. You know, all the while, you know, the guy in the crowd going, look at that guy, he just accidentally beat this dude, I could do that. And then he puts his money up. And so the whole thing was fixed, but not fixed in the modern sense of predetermined. Well, I guess it was, but it was fixed in terms of you didn't have a chance. You know, when you went into the ring with these guys, they were just that good. Pretty much like any carnival game at that point, like everything is a little bit rigged. Exactly. Exactly. And these people who were this good at wrestling, they became known as hookers, which is funny because, you know, we know what that means in slang today. But back then, a hook was your hold that you could use to make someone say uncle or tap out or give up. And a good hooker, right, um, could put his hooks into you no matter where you were, standing up, sitting down, laying down, on your side, on his, you know, they couldn't be on their back, of course, because of the wrestling rules. But they could put a you know, joint lock on you from any limb, any angle. Um, and so these hookers were, were known and feared. So I actually thought the word hooker used in the term as sex worker came from the Civil War, uh, Civil War General Hooker. That's the story. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure of that, but I do know. And one of our listeners is actually a descendant of, say, <laughs> General Hooker. <laughs> so I just wanted to bring that up there. I've heard that hey, story, too. And I've also heard that there's no way that we can be sure about that. Absolutely. Well, as far as his descendants, they believe it. So, hey, hookers. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this is a different kind of hooker from either one of those things. So when wrestling kind of became more like prize fighting, championship wrestling, where you'd have people competing who were both known to be professionals, that's when we're not entirely sure when matches started to be worked. To be perfectly honest, fixing of wrestling matches is probably, again, as old as competitive wrestling. But we're not sure when wrestling went from being mostly a competitive sport to becoming a sport entertainment where the matches are almost all predetermined like we have today. But at least at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, it was still a competitive sport at least sometimes. And the way this worked was every region had its own like wrestling circuit or own wrestling federation. Like the Midwest would have one and like Texas would have their own and California would have its own. But there would be a fella who would be like the world champion. And his job would be to go around and tour the other territories. Now, even at that time, it was supposed to be predetermined. But your traveling champion had better know how to shoot or know how to wrestle for real. 
Because if a local promoter is like, hey, I can get that title and make a lot of money for my territory, he might shoot on. That is, he might turn the predetermined match into a competitive match. And your champion had better know how to handle himself on the ring. Otherwise, he might end up losing the title and, you know, you end up in a sticky situation. Uh, So going well into the middle of the 20th century, most of the professional wrestling champions had some idea of competitive wrestling. They really could wrestle. And I think that by the time we get to, of course, the late 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, I think that we have that being less and less of a thing. And we have more and more people uh, who are doing sports entertainment where it's predetermined and may or may not have any kind of competitive wrestling background. So that is the wrestling carnival connection. What do you say that we go ahead and, um, Becca, why don't we revive that? Why don't we go take Jackalope Carnival on the road and start doing like the whole, you know. See, everyone, your mm-hmm. claps, they helped. He's starting <laughs> to believe in himself. But now I want to tell you the story of a fellow by the name of Ad Santel um, because his story is fantastic. And the Ad Santel was a wrestler during a time when wrestling was absolutely positively a competitive athletic contest. Ad Santel was born Adolf Ernst in 1887. He was German and he immigrated to the United States. Uh, He became known, he changed his name when he got to the U.S. as Ad Santel and is known as that for the rest of his life. Uh, He began wrestling in the United States in the early uh, 19-teens, so over 100 years ago. Uh, There are newspaper articles about him written in 1912. And he was a touring wrestler. That is, he was one of those guys who went around uh, wrestling in carnivals uh, in the early 1900s. But he got bored because he was just that good. He wasn't the biggest dude, but he was in really good shape. He weighed about 175 pounds. And he, if you take a look at pictures of him, he looks pretty good. Uh, He eventually decided to leave the carnival circuit behind, and instead he started wrestling professionally for money. By the time we get to 1913, he's already being billed as the light heavyweight champion of the United States, or at least of his particular territory. And he mostly wrestles in the West Coast, uh, in Northern California to be specific. Uh, He's Scrappy. He is scrappy. He's noted specifically for his mastery of submission holds. He was a hooker. He could tap you out from any position. You love that, don't you? (laughs) He was actually even supposed to wrestle the great Frank Gotch, who was the great wrestling champion of his time. But Gotch called off the match and we don't, the historical record doesn't say exactly why. I guess we're left to believe that maybe Frank Gotch was afraid of Ad Santel. Um, Ad Santel and Frank Gotch did train together, though, at times. Maybe they were good friends and he didn't want to embarrass his friend. So there's a funny story. This is a story that I wasn't necessarily going to tell, but there is one where Frank Gotch and Ad Santel were training together. And allegedly he was offered a great deal of money to injure Frank Gotch and make it look like it was an accident. Uh, so that the challenger would have an easier time beating him for the title. And there's some dispute as to whether or not that... He did it? Yeah, that happened or not. We're not entirely sure. How how much money do you 
much money are we talking? <laughs> it was four digits, which you got to think in like the early 20th century. That was a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now, for goodness sakes. But back then, it probably would have, you know, it would have been a couple of years worth of work for the average I'd, su- I'd sucker punch you for $40. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Noted. <laughs> okay. So that judo match that we were planning, uh, it's off now. Off the oh, track. darn it. I showed my hand too soon. I know, uh, right? Besides, who's going to pay to... Well, never mind. <laughs> Best not to ask that question. <laughs> There's a list. Anyway... <laughs> Everyone just keep clapping. Keep He's clapping. believing. He's believing seeing a future. Keep clapping. <laughs> Ex students who are angry about their grades. <laughs> <laughs> so, By the way, you can get a hold of us at Jack Club Carnival at <laughs> what's our email address again? Our email address is jackalopecarnival at protonmail.com. There you go. So if you if you want to try to pay Becca to injure me during our training. No. <laughs> anyway. So I'm sorry. We digress. We do, but only slightly. Um, speaking of judo, which we were earlier, Ad Santel was a pro wrestler, and he was always looking for a payday. Back then, pro wrestlers had to kind of be their own promoters. They were the ones who were not only wrestling, but always kind of looking for the next match, looking for the next way to get over, um, to try to get the crowd excited and uh, people wanting to pay money to come watch them compete. And so Ad Santel saw a real opportunity when there was a famous Japanese judoka, that is a judo player, judo wrestler. He was a fifth Dan or black belt uh, his name was Tokugoro Ito. And Ito was a fifth don, a high-ranking black belt, came to Seattle from Japan, and he was sent there by the founder of judo from the headquarters of judo in back in Japan called the Kodokan, which will come in to play later. Uh, Jigoro, I know that I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I'm going to have to name something the headquarters of judo because that's just too cool. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, The the Kodokan's still a thing. Uh, It's still the headquarters of judo. At the time, though, the the founder of judo was still alive. Uh, Professor Jigoro Kano, uh, who is the founder of judo, um, was judo at that time was just getting established. It wasn't the Olympic sport it is today yet, although it would quickly become one. But it was, and it wasn't famous. It was just becoming known. And mostly due to the efforts of Kano, who would send people out Uh, to go establish judo schools, uh, also known as dojos. And the first dojo in the United States would be in Seattle, and it would be founded by this guy, Ito. And in fact, uh, that Seattle dojo is still around. You can still learn judo there if you want. Judo and pro wrestling are two very different animals. You would think that, but wait till this story is over, because it's kind of fantastic. Well, yes, today, very, very different. But back then, um, Ito actually found that make, setting up judo schools wasn't as lucrative as he'd hoped. And so to make a little money on the side, he moonlighted as a professional wrestler. Awesome. <laughs> using his judo skills to tap out opponents. And he actually toured the United States and the Caribbean, uh, you know, taking part in, in wrestling matches and doing quite well for himself. Now, here's where language plays a part. So I think that in the 21st century, most people, you know, 
Asian martial arts have kind of infused into American culture. And we understand the concept of the black belt, right? Or the martial arts master. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always the case. And Thank you, Bruce Lee. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. At the time, the idea of... He didn't know how to say, I'm a fifth Don or I'm a high-ranking black belt. And so when he was pro wrestling, he was introduced as a famous judo champion from Japan. So when Ad Santel heard there was this pro wrestler who was the world judo champion, he was like, I got an idea. I can fight that guy and take his championship. Then I will be (laughs) the judo champion of the world. You know, not realizing that that is that's not how that works. That's, that's not, how, not that how any of that works. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, Ito's down. Santel's down. Uh, they wrestle. But the thing is, is that he's actually able to TKO Ito. He he throws him and uh, knocks him out. Because he's like, uh, there's no rules to this engagement. <laughs> And so he walks around calling himself the judo champion of the world. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, Kano can't, Professor Kano, you know, is like, I imagine he's getting news of this and he's like rubbing his temples like, oh my goodness. Now, to be fair, Ido will get a rematch four months later and he'll actually choke out uh, Santel. But by this point, Santel sees this as an angle. Right. He he sees it as a way to really whip up interest in these matches. For his part, Professor Jigoro Kano decides to send over some more judoka to basically shut Santel up and make him stop calling himself the judo champion of the world. Um, He sends over two more high ranking black belts. And. He Santel actually does really well against them. Uh, the first one, he taps out. Uh, he's actually able to make him submit. Uh, yeah, because this... nobody saw him throwing a bear in with them. <laughs> or something like that. Sure. <laughs> the sequence blinded him, whatever he's doing. Right. There's... <laughs> I'm imagining like a judo guy getting hit by a chair while like uh, somebody yeah, distracts. Like swinging. He's like doing, I'm doing the Texas tornado. Yeah. And like his manager's distracting the ref. And the judo guy's like, what? What's going on? No, I, I don't know if that happened. So he taps out two black belts or at least draws with one, taps out the other. And at this point, Santel's like, I'm going to just drive this home. I guess he decided that at this point, this is like a career move, like to go around challenging judoka. So he, he goes to Japan. <laughs> he decides he's going to like, Oh my goodness. I'm show. embarrassed for the United States at this point. <laughs> right. It's so awesome. And he sets up, he starts promoting what a delegate for USA Japan relations. He's like, yeah, he's 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 openly openly challenging all judoka to a fight, and he sets up matches um, outside of a Shinto shrine. Now, I don't have oh. any context for this. I don't know if that was a thing or if like this is just another tone deaf, like culturally tone deaf thing Santel's doing. But it does attract quite a crowd. Ten thousand paying customers will come to watch Santel fight these judoka. And this time, he goes over with a couple of other friends 
who are professional wrestlers. And it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, he does okay. Some of his friends don't. It's not the same kind of slam dunk that the, the San Francisco matches were. But at the same time, though, uh, Japan will get a look at what at this point is being called catches catch can wrestling, or we call freestyle wrestling, or as we know is the beginnings of pro wrestling, and they will be fascinated by Western pro wrestling. Well, who wouldn't be? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. And in, Jap- and in Japan to this very day, pro wrestling is actually very popular. Um, American style pro wrestling, actually. Uh, so Ad Santel will lose his, will, will eventually drop the whole, like, I'm going to take on all judoka after this trip. He gets tired of that and he moves on in his career. He loses his world championship, lightweight, heavyweight championship in 1922. But he will continue wrestling into the 1930s. And kind of one of the great passing of the torches here is he will go on to uh, train Luthez, who will, of course, be the mentor to a whole new generation of wrestlers. And Luthez will overlap with wrestling as kind of like spectacle to wrestling as a modern form of sports entertainment. So that's what I got for us this week about pro wrestling. I thought the Ed Santel story was just too good. It was brilliant. Um, And I like talking about the carnival days of wrestling too, because I find that fascinating. Well, yeah, and I I was really enjoying the gouging, uh, especially, (laughs) you know, being in North Carolina. And, you know, um, North Carolina has quite a history with wrestling, other than having a lot of native-born North Carolinians who are pro wrestlers. One of my favorite pro wrestlers of all time, I think a lot of people's, of course, is Andre the Giant. And he actually decided to move here. That's right. He's not from North Carolina. Yeah. Pardon? He's not from North Carolina. No, he moved here. He's French, (laughs) but he decided to retire in North Carolina. He said he moved to a small town here and um, said that basically people just kind of left him alone to his own devices. And uh, he really liked it. So a few years ago, his house was for sale. And I really, really at least wanted to tour it. But his estate, I guess. I can only Um, imagine. But I didn't get to and it has since sold. But that was an opportunity right there. And, of course, you have the Nature Boy. Yeah, um, he goes to the Comic-Con slash wrestling conventions here often. So we have those. Can we we set up a Jackalope Carnival table at that Comic-Con? I really want to meet the Nature Boy. Uh, I almost ran into him. He's huge. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we can do it if, 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 our, if our audience keeps clapping. <laughs> so the second part of this wrestling uh, show, we're going to talk a little bit more about Lucha Libre, which is of the Mexican form of pro wrestling. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about hardcore wrestling, especially a fellow by the name of Wild Bull Curry, who has one of the best sets of eyebrows ever known to humankind. That's quite an accomplishment in itself. Look it up. And tell me I'm wrong. Well, thank you for listening. And we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks as we put out a new Jackalope Carnival. Take care, folks. Jackalope Carnival!